3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR... 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to late 30 a.m. Only double. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning, Spike. Good morning, Inez. Hello, everyone. Morning, guys. Um, Before we do anything else, uh, we had a call this morning from Jason uh, who wanted to let everybody know that he has joined Haxu. So congratulations, Jason. And Jason wanted to extend his solidarity to all union members who are listening right now. So thank you very much, Jason. Hope you have a great morning. Um, But usually uh, if you're calling, uh, if you're calling just to have a chat, Talkback Radio also happens at 10 a.m. So if you want to actually get on air, recommend people ringing 0394198377 from 10 a.m. if they want to chat to um, the wonderful folks that host Talkback, um, because then you'll actually get the chance to get on air. Um, so maybe we'll jump in with what we got for today. Inez, do you want to kick us off? Hello. I am also back from a beautiful break, and I missed everyone so much. Oh, hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so today, I thought we'd jump in. We have our International Overdose Awareness Day special, which is today. So I will be just you know, taking us through the Pennington Institute's annual overdose report that was released a few days ago, discuss my recent tour of the medically supervised injecting sector, and also how important... Um, the chat about stigma is in this conversation and also the push for the new overdose prevention center just a little to chat but i know we're going to have um other wonderful conversations yeah absolutely um it's really really wonderful that we're able to have a themed show today for the 31st of august which is international overdose awareness day and so second up on the show we're going to be joined by chris goff who's the executive director of the canberra alliance for harm minimization and advocacy or kama and chris is going to be joining us again today to provide updates updates on the can test program which is australia's first fixed site drug and pill testing facility and kama is the alcohol tobacco and other drug consumer organization for the australian capital territory so they do a lot of excellent work around harm minimization uh, in that area but also have been doing this brilliant work with can test which is the first of its kind and hopefully uh, the first of many more to come around the country um, and we'll also have a phone interview with harm reduction promotion worker Britt Chapman from Harm Reduction Victoria. Harm, Redu- harm Reduction Victoria is a community-based, membership-based, not-for-profit organisation that provides peer education, advocacy, outreach, advice, support and information and training to Victorians. Um, Britt will discuss the importance of harm reduction programs, challenging stigma and the work of Harm Reduction Victoria um, in keeping people safe through the provision of health information. Wonderful. And then afterwards, we're going to be joined in studio. Do you want to tell us a bit about that, Spike? Because this is a conversation you're going to be having. So, yeah, um, 
uh, one of uh, a friend of mine, a colleague, is a community who works in community health, um, reached out and asked if we would like to have a couple of get- live guests in that were interested. So Finn is Finn is from um, is from the twenty four seven needle and syringe program in St Kilda. Um, she she's the founder of International Overdose Awareness Day, and she'll be discussing that with us. And also, Andy, the harm reduction and NSP worker from the Western suburbs, they're, they're also so going to come in to discuss um, uh, International Overdose Awareness Day, um, its importance, its origins, and the sharing of um, overdose awareness info. And I guess can I just say, for me, um, like I'm, I feel really conflicted. You know, for me, it's it's a solemn day. Um, yeah, uh, it's a, yeah, it, 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 it's uh, part of me wants to really celebrate the work of you know peer workers and the people in the community health sector that have got us this far to where we are now, so we can have these conversations. We've lost so many people way too soon. Um, it's, 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 it's such a tragic thing. You know, there was a time in the 80s where there was no information and there was only a handful of places in, in, in um, Melbourne, Metro Melbourne, where you could buy clean, just, just clean syringes. Mm. Like hepatitis C was rife. Mm-hmm. We, it, it was like a, you know, like, um, so, yeah, I really want to celebrate the work of, you know, advocates, activists, um, Anyone fighting for more, because it's a, health information is a human right. Let's make no bones. Mm-hmm. We have a human right to health care and the criminalization of people who use, you know, particular substances is just like, it's so gross. So, yeah, I just wanted to say that it's a conflicting time, but I also want to celebrate the work of people over the years. Yeah, 100%. Thank you, Spike. And yeah. I mean, it is... Like, it's a privilege to have you as a part of the show to be able to have these conversations because it is that sort of, you know, you've been through this whole period and been involved in this grassroots work. You're part of the the community that has been fighting for healthcare as a human right in the harm reduction space. So I'm really excited for what we're going to be talking about this show and hopefully um, hopefully it, it, it starts to approach, uh, you know, a fitting uh tribute to you know the people that that we've lost along the way because um i know speaking for myself there's uh, you know my life's definitely been touched by losing someone to to an overdose and i think it, the, the same is for many um other people and potentially some of our listeners right now so uh we'll go to our headlines um at, but first up we will head to a csa you are what you eat as you are Local Food Connections interviews with food producers, backyard growers and urban farmers. Join us every Sunday morning at 10am on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial, on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Local Food Connections, a show about the importance of local food in sustainable communities. From dust to dust, gotta just trust that upper crust and maintain that good terrain from whence you came. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 31st of August. 
The voice referendum date has been set for the 14th of October, with both sides, yes vote and no vote, expected to ramp up their campaigns over the coming six weeks. Some no campaigners say the voice to parliament is an elitist solution that will drive the nation and have little positive impact for First Nations people, especially those living in remote areas. A push against the voice is coming from those who want a national-level treaty. Local governments in Victoria are navigating local campaigns, including Murraybeck Council, which will not openly support the Yes campaign after it was chastised for ignoring the voice of its own First Nations Advisory Committee. In other news this week, the Northern Territory Ombudsman has recommended a ban on spit hoods and restraint chairs in the Territory. As part, of a ma- as part of a major report on devices used by police on people in custody, the report recommends a ban on the devices for people of all ages with mounting evidence that they carry risk of severe physical and psychological harm. Also in headlines, laws banning the Nazi salute in public were introduced into Victorian Parliament this week. It's already a criminal offence to display the Nazi swastika in Victoria and the new bill will also prevent people from intentionally displaying Nazi gestures. Those who do so face fines of more than 23,000 or 12 months in prison. The legislation was fast-tracked after a group of neo-Nazis crashed a Melbourne rally in March this year, performing the Nazi salute on the steps of Parliament. And finally, in news headlines, many inhabitants of the Kiribati Atoll of Banaban have have been forced to relocate in recent years after being blindsided over an agreement for the Australian company Centrex to explore phosphate on the islands. Now the former inhabitants, current residents and advocates are speaking out about a lack of consultation and want the deal revoked. Environmental destruction persists after 80 years of mining on Banaba including degradation of land and loss of fresh drinking water. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 31st of August, and you're listening to 3CR. Now, I thought we could maybe plug a couple of events that are happening today uh, for International Overdose Awareness Day. So I might start off with the candlelight visual that's happening tonight, but I know, Inez, you found a couple of others. So... Tonight, uh, for International Overdose Awareness Day, the 31st of August, there's going to be a candlelight vigil uh, to remember those that we have lost. Um, and this is at 5 p.m. meeting at Melbourne Town Hall for a walking vigil to Parliament House. Uh, the plan is to arrive at Parliament House steps at 6 p.m. and they ask that people bring a candle or photo of a loved one. And this campaign is being uh, run by the, the push to keep our city alive, uh, which is also the campaign that is focused on getting that second uh, supervised injecting space in Melbourne CBD. So uh, really encourage people to attend that if you can. Ines? Yes, and there is um, two events that I am aware of, but there are so many if you look at International Overdose Awareness Day. Um, there is one at North Richmond Community Health, uh, which is on Lennox Street in North Richmond. Um, and there is a barbecue uh, from the 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. at the front of North Richmond Community Health. And they will be speakers, a welcome to country, the new CEO, barbecue, finger food, and also a candlelight vigil. And secondly, there is another event in Collingwood Yards, also from 2 to 4 p.m., um, run by... Inner Space and Co-Health from 2 to 4 p.m. And that will also have um, an overdose tree, naloxone demonstrations, food and drink, one-minute silence. Um, 
yeah, and I think a lot of these events will honor the people that have passed away, um, the work that's been done, as Spike has mentioned, um, in ways that are fitting for the communities that they belong. Um, so yeah, please definitely come along to um, take time. Uh, sometimes these events can be really like difficult to come to. Um, there's also live streams of other events too that we can link. Yeah. I think there's also, before the um, the the um, the march or whatever tonight, there's a screening of a movie, and I think Britt's going to tell us a bit more about that at Harm Reduction Victoria. So that's Victoria Street, Brunswick, I believe. Yeah, so there is going to be an International Overdose Awareness Day event at uh, 299 to 305 Victoria Street, Brunswick, uh, today at 12 p.m., where there's free pizza, free naloxone uh, training, free naloxone and naloxone training at 12.30, and there's going to be a free screening of the documentary Smoky Devil Underworld Street Reporter at 1 p.m., so uh, that is being run by Harm Reduction Victoria, and I'm sure we'll get more details from Brit, and then we will have all of these details, um, all this information in the show notes, and yeah, hopefully folks can get along to something, stream um, stream live, but also um, understand if it's if it especially for people uh, whose lives have been touched by this um, in a in a more immediate way. If it's difficult to get out, just making sure that you are surrounded by folks uh, that you know that you care about, that care about you, that you reach out to somebody, um, have a chat, you know. Go out for a meal, sit down, have a talk, and remember that you're not alone, and there's so many That's people right. that are, yeah. um, you know, fighting on your side. Nice. Uh, so we might uh, head to another CSA now, and then uh, Inez is going to tell us a bit about some important news. Have you heard it on the news about the special proof thing? Even with racist views, they're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Hello, hello. Uh, so I am Inez, for those who don't know. I currently work in the AOD public health sector. Um, I'm also a mental health therapist. So I kind of have a dual role <laughs> um, in working with making accessible health information, providing information to really priority populations, as well as working kind of on the, the front line. I know I don't work in community health, but I just wanted to go through the Pennington overdose report, um, but also use that as a touching off point for other conversations that we can have. All opinions are of my own and they're not associated with any of the organisations I work with, um, but I feel really passionate about this area. So Pennington release a annual overdose report every year um, and it highlights you know, the need for really ongoing long-term investment into drug-related harm, prevention, reduction initiatives, as well as, you know, treatment services. 
So there's a, a, a whole range of things. Well, the main thing that really stood out to me in the current report is that you know people who are of lower socioeconomic backgrounds um, are really facing a, a large brunt of what's happening right now, um, particularly First Nations people, particularly people who um, really significant trauma, and. With the medically supervised injecting room, a majority of the people that, you know, use the service, get support with the service, will meet the criteria for PTSD. Also from the tour that I've done, a lot of them will have really significant trauma from childhood. And a lot of us know that trauma isn't just what happens to you. It is how people respond to it. Uh, and that keeps repeating and you keep being turned away. Alcohol and other drug use is a way that you cope with it um, and not always sometimes people do it f to experiment to rebel to cope the list is long it'll change but it's important to I think recognize that fact just a little side note you can overdose on lots of things yeah. on lots of prescription drugs um, it is not only the you know the drugs that people will associate with an overdose even though I think those are important to recognize mm. when we're having these conversations they are for the benefit of everyone um, if you need information on how to take Panadol safely that will benefit everyone as well yeah yeah and I think that's something we're going to touch on in the in the conversation with Chris at Karma as well um, because I feel like especially for people that use uh, recreational kind of party drugs um, there's a lot less of awareness about um, overdose and also yeah just much less of a discussion about overdose as something that may be a risk when you're engaging um in dabbling recreationally in, in various substance use. 100%. Yeah, and I think just coming back to the report, uh, well, what, we, what Pennington has found is that drug overdose is a leading cause of death for Australians. Um, sadly, there were 2,231 drug-induced deaths that were reported in 2021, and of those, 1,675 were unintentional. And over the five years, kind of like to 2021, more than two-thirds unintentional drug-induced deaths have involved two or more types of drugs. So in 2022, that is opioids of heroin, but it also involves like pharmaceutical opioids. Um, and they were the most common drug type detected in un unintentional drug deaths, followed by like benzodiazepines that kind of help you relax. And that's like Valium, stimulants, kind of like cocaine, antidepressants like SSSR, SSRIs um, and alcohol. And is interesting to see in the report is like uh, oftentimes when an overdose occur, it'll be something called polydrug use, mm -hmm. which means you're using different drugs kind of together. People are also overdosing on alcohol um, and also indigenous, indigenous people are more than three times likely to experience unintentional drug-induced deaths compared to non-Indigenous Australians, particularly men living in rural and regional areas and those in lower socioeconomic areas. When we're looking at, you know, there's the data, right? We have the data. <laughs> but then when we, like, take a tour of the medically supervised injecting room, um, or even if you look at the data from, like, King's Cross in Sydney, it is one of the only evidence-based health strategies that works. It prevents people from overdosing. It saves people's lives. Yeah. And it is one of the most contested. And I think that's really upsetting. And one of the things that stood out to me about the medically supervised injecting centre, particularly with, around, like, hep C treatment, got into a really far point. Like, you can ha – it's very minimal – 
invasive treatment at the moment and very little side effects. Um, so people kind of just put it off. They're like, oh, I'll deal with it. It's like something that I, I'll do in a bit. Um, and what North Richmond were doing were like originally going to the community health centers, putting it outside of a center, um, means that a person has to book an appointment, follow up for the appointment. It has like about 10 steps to even get to the appointment. Um, and the only thing they changed is they started testing in house and also treating in house. And once they started doing that, people felt really good (laughs) that they were like, I actually, you know, helped achieve something. And that's really amazing. And they feel like more compelled um, to work with other things in their house. Yeah. I I was part of a pilot program. Like I can't, I think it was in the early 2000s or something. It was we who were um, given access to hepatitis um, C treatment while we were still using. And that was a, you know, there was a time where you couldn't get access to hep C treatment if you were, you know, you're an active user. And, and it was in a group sort of situation and the sort of the conversations, um, and this is that turning point and it was one of the best like health experiences mm-hmm. I've ever had. And, and that was the, in those days it was still interferon and ribavirin. It was like 12 months mm-hmm. and the side effects could be really heavy back in the day. But the fact that you was, you were going through that with other people certainly helped me mm-hmm. and the peer workers. Can I say like a shout out to all the peer workers out there? Like were picking, picking me up, taking me to my appointments. It was, I wanted to swear then. It was just amazing. Um, yeah, it was one of the best health experiences I've ever had. Because when you're in crisis, as you said, it's really hard to make those decisions. And any setback is an excuse not to go th- go through mm-hmm. with it. Like whatever, like I'm the best, like I was one of the best people at making excuses, you know, to self-sabotage or whatever. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, those programs are so important for people. It's like it's a chronic health issue. Like hepatitis C was a major. Well, I don't know. Like I don't know the stats on it right now. But at the time, it was a major. Uh, you know, it was, it was taking people like annually. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. A shout yeah. out to all the peer workers and yeah. One hundred percent. And and like the the fact that that peer work and that understanding from within community, that community led understanding, um, is rather than a top-down model that demonizes people for not uh, displaying appropriate health-seeking behavior. It's really meeting people where they're at um, and saying, what do you need um, to be able to access the treatments that are useful and beneficial to you? Yeah, Yeah. and we also know that a public health response works. Mm. Um, And having, like, an overdose prevention centre like North Richmond or hopefully the new one in the city there has to be centers where there is where there is actual need um and also the fact that there as you've mentioned like having on-site healthcare on-site activities hepatitis C treatment it just removes one extra barrier yeah. people have connection to activities that they can do also just ha- yeah have the connection if you think about people that are entering the service maybe they are like maybe injecting alone or are using other drugs alone um and being able to like come in and get the support is really important and and also if there's other allied health like people have problems with their feet with their backs housing, know, a lot legal, of people yeah. yeah housing you know people because we don't have storage in this city for people that are homeless they're carrying their stuff all day man they're moved on constantly by police security guards all the rest of it mm-hmm. it's really important that that these things are situated where there's other allied health support so yeah big shout out yeah absolutely 
obviously an overdose prevention centre is definitely one part of the puzzle. Um, but there is so much more that we can do as a community. And I think the one thing that I would like to maybe just talk about very briefly is stigma, because I think this is a huge part of why we're not able to have like productive public health based response conversations it is it we know that these centers work we also know a public health response works but people um have like getting caught up in stigma or their personal feelings about it and if we just look at the the data we know that you know supporting people where they're at um with these centers is really important um but yeah i guess with you know stigma as well we know that Stigma is a really, like, complex, like, social problem. Um, and often it'll occur in lots of different areas. Like, you can develop internalized stigma over, like, ashamed, I want to use alone, which will also increase your risk. Um, maybe you feel worried about how your, like, relationships in your life will respond. Um, so you keep that private as well. Uh, but we know that strong, supportive relationships are so important. People don't reach out for help until their needs are absolutely critical, and that's probably five years in. So being able to, you know, maybe talk to, like, one or two people around you that really listen to you, that use, like, the kind of language of, like, you're a person that uses drugs, you're a person with a dependence, um, you're a person to me first, and I care about you. And I think it's really important to remember that. Yeah. And... Stigma is, you know, often really serious and really subtle and leads to, like, loss of social status, exclusion, rejection, unfair treatment and discrimination. And a cycle is created where people avoid or fear seeking help, only seek help when their needs are critical, and then they keep experiencing stigma and discrimination. And also with healthcare, it'll show up a lot there too. So I know there's a lot of things to have in the conversation, but I really implore people to really think about the like stigma in if they're like a healthcare worker, allied health worker, or, or just how you talk about people that use drugs or people that have a dependence. Um, it is an emotional issue, but yeah, making sure that we t- treat people with the dignity and safety and care that they reserve. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now we're going to have to wrap up this segment, but I know that, um, you know, this might have raised some, you know, concerns for folks who are listening and just want to remind people that if they want to talk to somebody, Inez, did you want to? Yes, there is a service called the National Alcohol and Other Drug Hotline, um, and that is 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That is 1-800-250-015. That's 1-800-250-015, and you'll be really directed to your statewide local alcohol and other drug service where you can get counselling treatment or support. Yep, and if you need to talk to anybody about, um, you know, just general uh, concerns around mental health, around how you're feeling, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. You can call Beyond Blue on 1300 224 That's 1300 224 And for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, you can always call 13 Yarn. That is 139276. 139276. Oh, I just like the word that keeps popping up in our conversations it's health, is health. This is a health issue. Unfortunately, it's, it, people are being criminalised because of like you know, like the establishment and its middle class sort of values that don't want to address it as a health issue. Um, 
uh, we don't have enough time to go into those reasons right now. But yeah, I think it's important to understand that, the, you know, these are health issues when people that use drugs, you know, we don't see people that drink alcohol as, as criminals. So I think yeah. that's an important thing to point out. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Spike. That's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are now joined by return guest Chris Goff, who's the executive director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Advocacy, or CAMA. And Chris is going to be joining us again today to provide updates on the CANTES program, which is Australia's first fixed site drug and pill testing facility. And I guess... Uh, and a particularly important thing to talk about in the context of today, which is International Overdose Awareness Day. So good morning, Chris. Good morning, Priya, and everybody. How are you? Good, thank you. And um, how about yourself? Yeah, very well on this International Overdose Day. Yeah, and uh, I guess, you know, last time that we, we spoke with you in January this year, um, Cantest was six months into its operation providing drug checking services in the Canberra CBD. And so uh, in, in view of the conversation that we're going to be having today and how it fits into International Overdose Awareness Day, can you remind listeners about how the service operates as well as give us a little bit of an overview of how the program's tracking a year on? Yeah, sure. So Cantest, um, it operates two days a week. It's not a lot of hours, just um, just six hours at the moment on Thursday afternoon and Friday night. And um, so what happens is people who want to get their uh, drugs checked can, can come in, um, have a chat to people um, on site, let the people know what they think that they've got in their possession. Um, give the give the drug to our chemical analyst who'll then run it through a, a series of tests and machines and amazing science um, and it will come back uh, with um, with a result on on what the drug or drugs that are in the sample that you've given are and also hopefully um, some kind of indication of how pure they are. Uh, and so from there, uh, then we'll um, talk to the person who's come in and let them know a little bit about the harm reduction advice around the drug, um, and and then hopefully uh, some the and and we can also do uh, naloxone testing and uh, not sorry not naloxone um, training on site, um, fentanyl testing on site, and things like that to to really inform people uh, about the drug that they're going to use, what it actually is, and and that's really important because one of the things that's come up and 
a year on is that, you know, about 50% of the drugs that are coming into CanTest actually aren't what the people think they are. Uh, and so it's been a really important step forward in making sure that people who want to go and party, especially, are able to do that as safely as they can. And we also give information about things like making sure that you're with your mates, making sure, you know, that you've got someone who um, who's going to look after you or you can ring if there's an emergency, stuff, stuff like that. Um, so yeah. it's been really useful uh, harm reduction um, uh, service uh, and it's been really well taken up by the community so far. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like it's been going brilliantly so far. I can't believe it's it's only open two days a week because it seems like such a such a vital service. So um, this brings me to to the evaluation of you know this pilot. So in April, the final program evaluation report was published for CanTest. So could you take us through some of the sec- central recommendations of the report based on you know the positive outcomes you've seen? Sure. So. Um, some of the key findings of the report um, were that so so really the evaluation looked at how the service has been implemented. Um, was it implemented as it was intended? And of course, it was a resounding yes. And um, and then it started to look at um, what service elements were needed and accepted by service users. What are the key char- characteristics of those who access the service? Starting to look at the sort of people who are coming into the service and how the service was received. And look, the the community has really received the service very well and has been really positive in coming forward and, and giving samples. We found that the people who use the service, um, um, the majority of them are young, um, two-thirds, 66% of primary service users um, were under um, 34. Um, and so, so the young crowd is really coming in on that Thursday and that Friday night and, um, and getting their, their drugs checked for the weekend. And the other thing is that when um, we also did some extended hours before festivals um, and they were really successfully used by people who were actually planning ahead for their festival on the weekend, getting their drugs checked and having conversations about you know, how they could be safest. Um, so, I mean, the other thing was that there were a few things that came out of the, the, um, of the evaluation that I think we do need to take into account one of those was that we're not getting um, as many uh, methamphetamine and heroin samples coming in as we would have liked. So that is that old, usually that's that, I mean, I'm making a big generalization here, but we've got a big cohort of people who use methamphetamines and heroin who are older, um, and, and, and they are actually the people who are probably most at risk of that um, opioid overdose that we reverse with naloxone. Mm-hmm. So we'd like to see a lot more of the community coming in and in the future we really need to think about how we can successfully engage with that community and get that service out to them so it's the most useful and we can get that most information about opioid overdose out there and as much naloxone as we can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this probably, um, you know, there are probably factors around there that relate to uh, the limited hours that the, the service is funded to be open, but I'm sure in terms of, um outreach capacities to to make sure that you're you're able to sort of get to folks who um you know who might not be proactively coming in to use the service um but 
The report also notes some interesting unintended positive outcomes, such as social media-based community alerts when unfamiliar or dangerous substances are detected in drug tests. So can you speak a bit more to this phenomenon? Because I'm I'm interested in, in some of the novel substances or um, unknown quantities you've come across in the period CanTest has been open, which includes a previously unknown variant of ketamine, which Karma's recently published a fact sheet on. So, yeah, can you tell sure. us a bit about this? Yeah, so this has been one really amazing part of the service is that kind of back-end stuff about when we get the results, being having the ability to then message to the broader community about them. And so, um, yeah, so CanTest has been doing um, doing its chemical analysis on those things and we're finding some really, um, you know, some variants and some unusual stuff out there. Uh, in about 50% of cases, uh, the drug that's walking through the door isn't what the person thinks. You know, and so it became really important to be able to broadcast this message, not only to the one person who brings it in, but also to, to other people in the community who might be using that drug and to make people aware of just how diverse and unpredictable, um, you know, the drug supply in Australia is. So what we do is we take those and we have a, we take the drugs as they come in and if we see something unusual, um, a, a small group will get together, um, and that that consists of the ANU chemical analysts. Um, there's a, a wonderful um, uh, emergency physician, David Caldecott, um, who also give advice to ACT government, Karma and Directions, who run the service with us. Um, and we'll kind of have a have a talk conversation about what the potential is for harm in the community, whether it's worth um, a, a community alert or a, even a, like a red alert, um, uh, where ACT Health actually kind of pumps out the information via a whole range of different public health sources. Mm-hmm. And so we've got kind of a number, so we can kind of determine whether, oh my goodness, this is something that's really dangerous. We need to spread widely. And in that case, you know, we can kind of get it out to the uh, to um, ACT Health will get it out to um, you know in that broad kind of way to all health professionals and and into the media and things like that and then that very quickly will be able to spread across Australia because we link into um, a network called the Prompt Response Network which is being set up across Australia so that all of this information can be known throughout Australia and likewise if it's a community alert that's when kind of karma gets involved um, and and really kind of you know adds information about how you know tricks for the community and things to think about in terms of harm reduction advice, and then we can put it out on our socials. Cantest puts it out on their socials. Uh, Directions puts it out on their socials. Um, you know, and, and a whole and then it also goes to the prompt response network through another kind of feature that they have, which is all about community called the know. And so the object is to get it out to as many people as possible. And we know that drugs aren't stationary and they move around Australia. We, we know that they come from their entry points that they spread. And so it's really important not only that we're able to message this stuff to the Canberra and community in the ACT, but also to inform the rest of Australia about what potentially is out there and what to look out for. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we also have, uh, you know, accounts like on social media like Seshed, who I, you know, I follow and I know a lot of other people follow as well, um, Mm -hmm. who are then amplifying this information. Um, And so it, it really, you know, it's about getting it in front of as many eyes as possible so that people are aware of this. So, 
Considering that today is International Overdose Awareness Day, it would also be good to get your thoughts on how drug checking services might contribute to both a broader awareness of overdose risks, including from substances other than opioids, as well as to drug destigmatization and decriminalization efforts overall. Yeah, so so look, I think um, drug checking definitely needs to be part of our harm reduction armory, um, and and so like as I said, we we do have the ability to um, to do uh, naloxone brief interventions on site, train people, and give them the naloxone. But also, if you look at the latest Pennington report, you'll see that there's almost 20%, just under 20% of fatal overdoses that are happening just with stimulants alone. That's something that we that has been increasing um, since 2000, just after 2000, when we started kind of looking at this stuff, and um, and it's really concerning. And so, you know, part of this part of this um, architecture of drug checking that needs to be rolled out more broadly has has been, you know, that uh, the ability to test some of these stimulants, which are like the um, like you know what was you know, like like the ketamine variety that we found in, in which seemed to be quite ubiquitous for several months last year. Um, so the ability to kind of know what the drug is, and a lot of them are very unique and have never been seen before. And so what that's doing is it's it's giving us some information, but we really need to build on this next step. So we're coming up with this big list of quite unusual drugs, which we actually don't know a lot about in terms of their effect when they're used. And so the next step, I think, is to be able to reduce overdose. We really need to start to gather some of this information as we're doing at CanTest and to start working on how do we produce harm reduction, good harm reduction advice for these new drugs? How do we gather information about um, you know, what the experience is like and how it's being used in community? And then how can we message that back so that people can be safest from overdose? Um, and so I think the other thing is that we we suspect that there's a lot of variability across Australia, but we really don't know that much about the drug uh, about drugs, you know, in in other geographical areas. And so it is really important that um, the drug checking is taken very seriously, and it does need to be fit for purpose for the actual city or or the spot that it's going to be located in, um, and. And, and I must say, to that end, we've done great work at CanTest, but if you guys remember the original journey was actually to have that pill testing available at festivals mm-hmm. um, and actually in collaboration with programs like DanceWise at Harm Reduction Victoria and in New South Wales, newer runs, um, which provide care spaces and a lot of really in-depth information um, for people, things like trip sitting. Um, and so, you know, we do need to keep going. That is that best practice when you have a festival to have those two harm reduction strategies working on site um, and we're having a big problem at the moment with um, with insurance not being able to get insured and which is totally crazy right because you know drug checking at festivals is actually taking away risk from festival yeah. providers so so we have a lot of work to do around overdose in terms of making sure that we really understand that you know it has top it tops the road toll it, and it continues 
continues to top the road toll year upon year for the last, I'm not sure of the date, but it's kind of mid-2010s. It started to kind of head off into the spectrum. Um, so we really do have a crisis here. When we look at America, that is an enor- and Canada, that's an enormous fentanyl crisis over there. But even within Australia, um, a person is dying every four hours of overdose. And so we, this is an absolute emergency, and we really need to ramp up services like drug checking um, because overdose is starting to look very different than it used to look where the majority was just overdosed through heroin. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think, you know, the the work that Cantest is doing that to raise awareness about the changing profiles of overdose risk is is crucial in this regard. And so just to wrap up, is Cantest set to continue for the foreseeable future? And do you think we can expect a wider availability of these services across Australia, like you've indicated that we need? Yeah, look, I, I really hope so. So Cantesters, um, so we got a, so we'll, we'll be up and running for, um, for 18 months, which is really good. Uh, and so what, what that, um, what that means and, and why is that? Why isn't it permanent? Well, the ACT government is just looking at that six hours that it's open, um, and, and wondering if there's a more integrated model for that, um, you know, which is fine. And I think really important, especially given given that we're not connecting as well as we would like to with some of the more marginalised community members out there. So I guess the ACT government just kind of giving us the heads up that we need to do a little bit more work to really bed down an efficient way of doing things. Like you were saying and I was saying before, having it open six hours a week, you know, there there could be some improvements to that, right? And we Mm -hmm. could integrate it with other services um, to make sure that people who inject drugs are able to access and are able to get equipment and you know, so there's a bunch of stuff around integrating the service into the way ACT Health um, and drug and alcohol kind of sector and the community organisations that surround can test to make sure that it's done properly. So, uh, so I'm really hopeful that after this extension period, you know, we'll get the green light to go ahead as a permanent service. Um, we know that there are some moves up around the country, which is fabulous. Queensland has said that they're going to have one up by the end of the year. Um, I don't know what that looks like, but I will be um, barracking for them. Likewise, um, the, some of the, the injecting centres are considering how they can work um, drug checking into their service delivery, and I think that's really important because the majority of people who go to the medically supervised injecting centre and the injecting room, mm-hmm. um, you Know, are that marginalised community who can test um, isn't seeing as much as we would like to of. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> again, the diversity of so people are starting to look at okay, what's the situation in our backyard and how can we integrate drug checking into it? That's really exciting. So um, you know, my message is come on, guys, let's do this thing. We need to kind of map you know, where the drugs are, what they are, and some of their effects so that we can be safe mm-hmm. and so that we really know the kind of marketplace that we're buying from. Um, and, and, and I hope in that way we can all keep, keep safe and, and have a wonderful time. Yeah. You know, I think it is such a fantastic and vital service that CanTest is providing, and hopefully we see a lot more of that uh, spread out in the future um, to, you know, promote harm reduction and make sure we're keeping each other safe in community. Um, 
as we continue to uh, develop a further awareness of, you know, these emerging drug variants and the profile of, of overdose in Australia. So thank you so much, Chris, for taking the time to speak with me this morning. No worries. And happy International Overdose Awareness Day, everyone. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. And that was Chris Goff, Executive Director of the Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimization and Advocacy, or CAMA, who joined us again today to provide updates on the CanTest program, Australia's first fixed-site drug and pill testing facility. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but co-power gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a co-power member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and co-power today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. Published or Not has been on air for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas. With local authors, authors from the interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app. So join us every Thursday at 11.30 on 3CR. I've been working on my rear that's right. I'm going to change the ending. Going to throw away my title and toss it in the trash. Uh, um, uh, morning, Brit. Oh, sorry, I should interest. Uh, so now uh, we're speaking to Britt Chapman, the harm reduction worker from Harm Reduction Victoria. Morning, Britt. Good morning, Spike. How are you going? Yeah, I'm all right. All right, mate. So um, I guess the, the most important tool we have um, to fight um, overdose is health information. Can you tell us about the harm reduction programs and why they're important? Sure thing. Um, well, firstly, like what a harm reduction program is, or like which ones are effective, is going to vary between different communities, like in Victoria and Australia across the world, because by definition, a harm reduction program is like a grassroots response that comes from the communities who the programs are designed to serve. So therefore, they're, they're going to be unique between different communities. Um, so it's really important that people have control over, I guess, like access to services, how those services are like, um, like the provision of the services to them. Um, it's shown to work time and time again. And with the HIV crisis in the 80s, you know, luckily the government had their sit together enough to like, um, realised that that was the best way to, to stop the spread of HIV. And that's sort of why we have this legacy of um, of grassroots, peer-based um, drug user organisations that still have funding today doing a lot of this kind of work. So can you describe a couple of the um, the, the programs that are running at Harm Reduction Victoria? Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Like um, there's the NSP program, which is Needle Syringe Program. Um, 
most people would have heard of needle exchange. It's the same thing. Um, so we don't actually exchange needles. Um, we do take in used needles for proper disposal, but, um, but anybody can come in and they have access to as much um, sterile new injecting equipment as they like. Um, we also have the PAM service, which is pharmacotherapy, advocacy, mediation and support. Um, and so they help people out with their um, methadone or buprenorphine um, scripts, um, whether they need help um, with advocacy with their doctor or prescribing chemist or dispensing chemist, um, or whether they just need to like change programs or whatever, really. Um, we also have DanceWise, which is a project that goes to, mostly they go to multi-day festivals, um, music festivals, and um, provide support for the, um, for the punters of the festivals. So they have a big tent and they basically look after people um, who are tripping or, you know, having, <laughs> having a pretty good time, can't find their friends, they became alone. They call it trip-sitting, actually. Um, yeah, that's really cool. That's got a very big volunteer base, um, a few hundred volunteers, I think. Um, we have Hughes Initiatives, which um, it has a lot to do with supporting the peer workforce and um, development around the peer workforce. Um, and I'm part of the health promotion team, and so we do a lot of um, like education stuff around a lot of our funding is for bloodborne viruses, so a lot around Hep C these days, um, yeah. but also just general information and education to to make people's um, drug use experiences um, safer and give them more control over their um, experience. Is education also around battling stigma, Britt? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. You know, like, harm reaction is about addressing um, any drug-related harms, and, and so many of the harms related to drug use isn't from the actual drug use itself, but it's the stigma surrounding the drug use. Um, yeah, it's still, it's still very much accepted throughout society um, to stigmatise and discriminate against people who use drugs, especially people who use certain drugs. Some drugs are more stigmatised than others and, and certain ways of, um, of taking drugs, like different routes of administration, are definitely stigmatised more heavily. Like injecting heroin or meth is, is far more stigmatising than, say, having a drink of alcohol or smoking a joint. So um, I guess is, so when we're talking about overdose, is it just illicit drugs that people are in danger of overdosing with? Or is it, you know, like I think there's a bit of a mm. misconception that people, it's only illicit drugs that can cause overdose. Yeah, absolutely there is. There's definitely the, um, the stereotype of the overdose, someone dying from overdose being someone who's, um, who has a dependency on heroin, but that's, um, you know, it's, it's common um, amongst overdose deaths that there's heroin involved. But actually, like, I was, I was reading the latest um, annual overdose report that just came out the other day, and, like, a quarter of unintentional drug-related deaths um, are one quarter alcohol only, for example. Mm. Or, like, oh, what was benzos? I think, like... I think that's a, a really massive contributor, like prescription drugs. Oh, it really is. Yeah. A lot of people are prescribed all these different medicines that are um, like quite often central nervous system depressants. And once you like put more than one of those in the 
in the mix, overdose risk goes up so much. And people, when they get these drugs from the doctors, they're not really explained the risk of overdose. Yeah. Um, and, that's, and that's because of stigma. Yeah. And, or maybe yeah. it's explained in a way that they don't understand or they don't feel comfortable asking questions. Absolutely. And again, if they don't feel comfortable, that's stigma yeah. coming into it. Yeah. And also, it's totally true that, like, doctors and healthcare professionals gatekeep information about <laughs> drugs and they don't explain things to people properly. I guess that, you know, that goes like to the anyone... import... Sorry, sorry, Brie. No, I was going to say anyone who's um, being prescribed an opioid should also be at least given the option to take home some naloxone as well, which is the antidote to opioid overdose. Um, but it's the fact that that's not happening when people coming out of hospital, coming out of surgeries, people living with long-term pain who have opioid prescriptions don't even know what naloxone is. Like, that's super problematic. What, why do you think that is? Why don't you... Th- what, what, yeah, can you speak to that a little bit? Um, yeah, I really think that it's it's... The misconceptions, the myths that you mentioned before yeah. about who overdose um, happens to because it's a debrief subject as well. People don't want to talk about it. People don't know how to start talking about it. And also people think that it's not going to happen to them. Mm-hmm. People don't, yeah, people don't have the education or the knowledge, you know, when our public narrative, what we're taught in schools and that is that, like, say no to drugs, drug use is bad, people who take drugs are bad people. It doesn't really make it doesn't really make for like opening up conversations about overdose at all. I guess that that goes to the importance of the peer workforce in that space, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. Because the peer workforce, you know, are there to use they're they're identified as people who use drugs, have used or still currently use drugs as lived and living. Um, You know, a lot of people at Home Reduction Victoria, we're living experience drug users, which means that we still use drugs. Um, A lot of people get shocked like that. They assume that we must be in so-called recovery, whatever that is. Um, (laughs) But, you know, we're just people like everybody else. (laughs) All right, so how's how's Home Reduction Victoria commemorating... Oh, International Overdose Awareness Day, and how can people get behind? Um, yeah, mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, for the last two weeks, we've been um, on social media and through our needle syringe program, have been um, uh, putting together some information about overdoses, different types of overdoses, um, recognizing them and how to respond to them. Um, and then today we're also we're having a community event in our um, building, so in our office space. We've also got a community room and a big back area where we're going to have pizza and do a naloxone training and show a documentary. So pizza's from 12 o'clock. The naloxone training is at 12.30 and the film starts at 1, goes for about an hour. Um, it's a documentary about a graffiti artist in the downtown east side of Vancouver and how he uses his art to raise awareness about the overdose crisis, um, among other things over there. Um, And then we are, a few of us are going down to support the Keep Our City Alive campaign, which um, Keep Our City Alive is a group of residents in the CBD who are supportive, uh, residents and traders in the CBD who are supportive of a second um, supervised uh, drug consumption Right. Yeah. Um, so, like, the government is well due to release this report they were putting. They commissioned someone to put together um, 
about about details about a proposed site, I guess. Um, there's been, like, no movement on that for years and years now while people keep overdosing and yeah. dying in the CBD. Um, if there was a facility in the CBD, not as many people would be dying, you know? Yeah. People, people would be able to have overdoses responded to. Oh, wow. Um, oh, mate, that's, yeah. that's, it's, it's tragic, and I, like, I just want to, yeah... Um, yeah, hope, hopefully people. So where is where where's that meeting held? The keep the city alive. Yeah, so that's a meeting at town hall um, at five o'clock. It's a it's a walking candlelight vigil. Yeah. Um. So me. Uh. Yeah. In front of town hall in Swanston Street at five, there'll be um, a few very short speakers, and then um, we'll be walking to Parliament House. Um. And and finishing up with a moment silence at Parliament House. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, all right, mate. Look, thank you so, so much for your time yeah. this morning. Hey. Yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, if people wanted to come to our pizza and movie lunch event today, um, our address is um, 299 Victoria Street, Brunswick. It's um, on Victoria Street in between the tracks and Sydney Road. Thanks so much, Britt. Yeah, no worries, Spike. Thanks for having me on. Have a good one. You too. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Oh, okay, so, yeah, that was our... Um uh, harm reduction worker Britt from Britt Chapman from Harm Reduction Victoria discussing um, the programs run um, from Harm Reduction Victoria, a community-based, membership-based, not-for-profit organisation that provides peer education, advocacy, outreach, advice, support, information, and training to drug users in Victoria. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Okay, um, on our International Overdose Awareness Day special, um, yeah, so in the studio we have guests, our guests today, we have Finn from Harm Reduction Victoria from the 24-7 Needle and Syringe Program in St Kilda, who's the founder of the International Overdose Awareness Day, and Andy, Harm Reduction and NSP worker from the Western Suburbs. Um, yeah, so how are you guys going? Good. Good, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Awake. <laughs> it's At humbling. Mm. In it, waking up early is humbling already. <laughs> you must be used to it. <laughs> well, since I've been unemployed, I've been unemployed for a couple of months. It's been, it's, it's, de I've definitely sort of realised. Um, yeah, it's, it's a thing. Getting up in the morning is a thing. <laughs> All right, mate. So, guys, Finn, maybe Finn first. Um, can you give us a bit of a history about the about the origins of International Overdose Awareness Day? Like, your knowledge of how it's celebrated, like, as we were talking about a bit, how it's celebrated over, or commemorated, uh, and what it means. What does it mean to you? Yeah. Well, the history um, of it really is that I was a family therapist in my early social work 
career and um, came across people who had lost loved ones in their families and I was shocked uh, not only by the grief that they uh, no, I wasn't shocked by the grief that they felt but I was shocked by the response from the communities where they lived and it was a rural situation which seemed to uh, I thought maybe it's because of the rural situation and uh, lack of knowledge about drugs and then um, I went to work at the Needle and Syringe program, the 24-7 program uh, in St Kilda for the Salvos. And over the desk, I met so many people who had lost friends and partners and, um, you know, some up to 17 uh, people had gone from people's lives and there didn't seem to be a spot in the calendar or even a time uh, that they could kind of pause and reflect on those people with any sort of pride. Um, they'd often been uh, isolated by the family and um, not allowed to go to the funerals. And uh, the devastation, wow. yeah, it felt to me that it was, going, it was having an impact on them yeah. and how they felt about themselves. And I felt that uh, we were mature enough, you know, uh, in, uh, as a community to offer a hand to them to say, no, we, um, we do care about you and we care that you've lost your loved ones and your friends and uh, we're going to acknowledge it. And um, I guess that I did get involved with uh, some parents at that stage as well. Yeah. And uh, they felt, too, that they, for the first time, they could talk in public with pride about the child that they had lost. And uh, it, was, it wasn't always straightforward for people, uh, and, but they desperately wanted uh, to be able to voice how they were feeling about what had happened. Um, so, yeah, so... Um, uh, that we also we had uh, heroin glut, so-called heroin glut in uh, 1999 and 2000 in Australia, and uh, the numbers of fatalities from overdose seemed extremely high. Uh, they are much higher now, but they did seem high back then. Yeah. And so um, yeah, we started a small, uh, had a small um, event in the backyard at the St Kilda Crisis Centre. And uh, we, but in the lead up to the day, we gave away 6,000 ribbons, yeah. uh, sent them to New Zealand. So already uh, there'd been interest from overseas. So from the very beginning, there was an e enormous response to the day and what it stood for. And so just, just yeah, like, have you seen, how is it commemorated overseas? Mm. Just just so we can compare and contrast, like, mm. how, because in Australia, it's, it's, it's completely invisible on the media. It well, not commercial media, but, yeah, the general mainstream media. Yeah. It's been, you know, every year we get little pockets of media uh, in Australia here and there. Um, I have put it down to... Uh, Partly stigma still, um, partly the fact that people don't uh, understand what the day is about. They, there's so many misconceptions around who is dying yeah. from overdose. 
there's so many misconceptions about what uh, if you don't die, but you you uh, are left with the ramifications of having had an overdose, um, in which you can be permanently disabled. Yeah. Um, those people are totally invisible in yeah. our discourse, and um, I I look at America. I sent my boss yesterday a clip from America from Chicago. Illinois, and it was a five-minute news segment, and I think they said the words International Overdose Awareness Day eight times wow. in that five-minute segment. And um, and very bravely, uh, three mothers spoke about the children that they'd lost. Um, and I, I don't know, I, this sounds a little bit hoity-toity of me, but I sort of think it's a bit about our reserved nature, you know, that we we have... Uh, it's taken a long time for the AOD um, uh, community to even um, really feel that they've got a right to push on these things, to push yeah. uh, for naloxone to be um, everywhere, and we, we still haven't achieved it. But um, at least we're starting in these last couple of years to really understand that we've got a right to talk about what's going on, yeah. and uh, we know we can prevent a lot of these deaths, um, and we're being kind of barriers are put up in front of us not to do it, and that's a tragedy basically. Andy? Yeah, so, yeah, same question, like, what, what does the Overdose Awareness Day mean to you, I get, yeah, to you? Um, yeah, and, and you know, what's, like, if you had any involvement with it before? Or? Well, I guess, um, for me, it's twofold. Um, uh, it's, uh, you know, I've been working in harm reduction for 23 years, um, um, but also, you know, I, um, many of my friends and including myself have used heroin here and there over the years. And, um, uh, my first, the first of my friends to die of an overdose was in 1996. She was 22 years old. Um, uh, the stigma around drug use was such that her parents didn't allow any of her friends to attend the funeral. Um, which I would put as a form of lateral violence, like everyone's hurting there and it would be wrong for us to blame each other. We're living within a society that doesn't really care very much about people and their struggles and um, certainly my experience looking at who dies, um, it's it's um, the long-term users of particularly heroin um, who are survivors of childhood trauma. Uh, in many cases, uh, extensive histories of abuse and um, physical and sexual violence and you know, we don't really look after people very well, and this is um, this is the end product. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know the the stigma is such that uh, that that part of the story never really gets told, and we just we just see a bad person of no value dying, and um, I think that's one of the issues with having it in media in Australia, um, and I don't know about other places, but certainly in Australia, uh, especially where you've got a comment section, is that you get a lot of um, people voicing the opinion that you know that they're. they're they're kind of glad they're dead and it serves them right and it's their fault. Oh, wow. So um, it is really it is really tough. Yeah, it is really tough. Yeah. Um, I had three friends die between late 2021 and early 2022 in, um, in quick succession. Yeah. And um, all of those people, um, yeah, history of trauma and early, you know, one person, um, he was living on the streets from the age of eight. Um, so yeah, they're really behind the eight ball, and it's kind of like 
it's the tip of the iceberg. It's that pointy bit that shows that we live in a society where we don't really look after yeah. our, our our people in highest need. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just wanted to jump in on that. Um, you know, the really vile media commentary that does come out um, when people, especially in, you know, people who use um, drugs intravenously, are talked about in in the Australian media landscape that ties into this much broader demonization of people who rely on social security, of people who are in public housing. There's so much so much punching down that is enabled by mainstream media across the political spectrum, whether it's, you know, centrist media or, you know, much more right-wing conservative media that um, really, you know, fails to see the humanity but um, actively dehumanizes um, people rather than, you know, recognizing that we're all in community and we all should be, you know, seeing the intrinsic human worth of, of everybody else. Can I just say on that, like, when the st- the stats um, from the coroner's court came out in February, I was still working at CoHealth, and I did it like an interview, an ABC thing for them. And when they were speaking to, when they asked me, and I told them, and they asked me, so you know, have you overdosed? And you know, and I told them, and how many people do you think you've lost? For them, it was all about the numbers. Mm. Yeah. It was all about the and they just they couldn't believe. And and as you just. It was it was such a sanitized um, yeah it was all about data it was mm. just like so give me some numbers yeah. yes that sensual uh, sense um, the sensationalism that goes along with this mm. you know it's like prurient we all you know we're looking in to see the devastation and in fact um, we're completely missing the point and. Um, I just feel for people who are on the other end of that, um, wanting to actually, you know, lift up um, their child and remember them with pride or their partner or their friend. And, um, yeah, I've been really... It's really interesting that you sort of bring this up because I've only uh, seen one really devastating response to Overdose Awareness Day, which was, you know, the typical, um, I'll let them all die and all this sort of thing. And, you know, which is also incredibly ignorant, um, because, uh, and, and actually has, uh, really been, you know, stopped us from, um, getting the information out there because, there are so many, as the uh, other worker from harm reduction talked about, um, there are so many uh, prescription drugs out yeah. there that are causing the havoc. In fact, I think that they are causing the most damage yeah. in terms of statistics yeah. these days that um, people are being idiotic about it. You know, They really do not have a clue. that. Um, so they're not only dividing people, they're dividing the drug. You know, they're saying that um, oxycodone is not heroin. And, you know, all these drugs are opiate-based and they're all creating the same response in the body. Um, and also, they're also not ex- uh, exploring the fact that, yes, people are dying of uh, alcohol, benzodiazepines, um, and, you know, people can overdose on meth. It's a different yeah. type of overdose, um, but you can overdose on uppers. Yeah. So, so do you guys see it as a day of commemoration? Do you see it as an awareness raise? Like, yeah, what do you see? 
as International Overdose Awareness Day, maybe, Andy? Look, for me, <clears throat> as I said before, it really is personal. Like, today's the day I, I okay. do think of those for my friends who aren't around anymore and, um, you know, and think about, you know, what can I do, I guess, um, in my professional life and in my personal life, I guess, um, letting people know um, that it's important, it's yeah. important to me and, yeah, and that... Those of my friends who, you know, do still use drugs, that, um, that, that they're important people, that you don't have to live a life in a particular way to have a, a life well lived. Mm. Um, you know, there's no, there's the trappings of success of our society are, are kind of meaningless and, and pointless. And, um, you know, and I guess it does come back to harm reduction also at a theoretical level. Like it's, uh, the basis of harm reduction is don't focus on the drug use, focus on the harms. Yeah. And so, you know, like you were saying before, whether it's prescription or heroin, it doesn't matter. Whether it's alcohol or, or, um, oxycodone, it doesn't matter. You know, whether it's, um, you know, a gambling addiction or a heroin addiction, it doesn't matter, you know. It's actually about people and their lives and their well-being and what we can do to support people to mm. live in this society because everyone's entitled to a life. Yeah. In listening to you talk like that, Andy, it reminds me that uh, or makes me think that um, it is for, first and foremost for me too a day of commemoration and remembering mm. and... Um, uh, and acknowledging and um, knowing that the joy that people brought, you know, has been just buried under mm. their last act or something that they did, the way they chose to live. And um, because it feels like as uh, alcohol and drug workers, we are just, or harm reduction practitioners, we are fighting the battle every day for um, improved access mm. to services and um, the lowering of stigma and, mm. you know, but this is a day uh, for us to shout it out to the world. But first and foremost, it's a day to actually acknowledge that um, we have lost people that mm. we were very truly close to and loved. Yeah. And look, um, you mentioned numbers before, Spike, and... Yeah. <clears throat> they can be um, depersonalising, but also, you know, one of the drivers of um, harmful drug use is homelessness, and we're li- living through a time of unprecedented homelessness, and and we see, you know, the consequences of that in many ways, including overdose deaths. So yeah, um, uh, was as you say, so shall you reap, you know. That we don't have a safe space. Mm. I guess one of the things I was going to ask about was, that, you know, another safe, in, you know, uh, safe injecting space. That we don't have a space where people can meet um, and use safely. You know, where there's mm. only one in the whole state is is outright. You know, because you know, when when I have conversations with people about that, I point out that there's like a pub on every second corner, hmm. and, and they're next to schools. And people are okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But suddenly... <laughs> There's a pub right across the road from that primary school in North Richmond yeah, where everyone's been there for jumping years. up and down about the injecting <laughs> room. It's like, are you yeah. serious? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, not to mention the rampant promotion of gambling, for example, mm. as another, like, hugely drinking and gambling are hugely socially normalised mm. um, in Australia. And, and yet... You know, when you look at the the massive, like, positive cultural weight that's afforded to both of those things, I think gambling a little less so, and then look at the way that people are dehumanized in relation to the use of other substances, um, it's just an absolute gulf between the two. So what, what, so 
what what's the barrier? Why why is it so? We're talking about these are the really obvious yeah. things. What what's getting in the way of the information that we're talking about? And yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's been a slow sludge of a very carefully orchestrated political um, rhetoric that has brought us to this situation. Uh, you know, even when um, Nixon, you know, first of all talked about the war on drugs, he actually weirdly, not weirdly, he a part of his uh, thing was that he was going to build up treatment centres and all these other things. So his iteration of the war on drugs actually sort of, you know, if you took away the language, kind of made sense. But they saw, all the other political people that followed him saw that how he won his election back from a losing situation on that basis. And so they they just have taken away, taken away, taken away. It's happened before this. I shouldn't just put it down to the, you know, when the war on drugs became, you know, a, a catch cry. It, um, we've been othering people since, you know, the industrial yeah. revolution and in fact, uh, working out ways to, si- to sort of sideline certain groups of people. And drug use has been very helpful for that. You know, in 1900 in Australia, smoking-grade opium was made illegal, not the tinctures that middle-class women were drinking, hmm. not the uh, injectables that the nurses and the doctors were using, um, the and of course they uh, the Chinese people were smoke were smoking the opium and so they were the ones that were locked up in prison and you know there's a whole lot of kind of suspicion around other things that you know sort of bled out from that but yeah this is this is a very deeply rooted way of organising people into silos and saying those people are bad these people are good. Um, and with absolutely no real understanding of what's going on, which is that we're not, all of us are not very different from each other. Mm. Andy? Um, <clears throat> well, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's a shortage of knowledge of the facts. Uh, I think it's actually just about vested interests wanting to mainta- maintain the society that we live in. And, you know, it, it is about services for people who use drugs. It is about housing services, mental health services. It's about public education. Um, so I'm also involved in another program on 3CR, Dogs, Defence of Government Schools. So, you know, we know that um, public schools in Australia are underfunded to the tune of $6.6 billion yeah. against the government's own standard. So, you know, um, it's, there's a lack of political will to actually look after the citizens in this country and that it's not about knowing what to do. We know what to do. We're just not doing it. Mm. Well said. Yeah, that actually does come back to that, to that numbers thing where there is sort of an obsession with rattling off statistics about, um, you know, you know, effectively trauma porn, uh, poverty porn, people, mm. um, you know, wanting to demonstrate the extent of, of harm in, in numbers, which, you know, on the one side is useful for getting funding for particular things, but on the other side, um, can sort of become a self-reinforcing loop of collecting data without doing anything about yeah. it. Does that kind of speak to some of those concerns? Well, I think, um, yeah, we see this in all um, kind of aspects of political life where change is required and instead government commissions another report, you know. And we see that with, the, you know, the services and, um, for Indigenous Australians. Um, you know, there's recommendations from the um, 
Royal Commission into um, Stolen Generation and Black Deaths in Custody from literally decades ago that have not been yeah. acted on. And so, we, and now, you know, that we're having more consultation or let's have another consultative body. And it's like, well, <laughs> we actually know, we Sorry. actually know what to do. We actually know yeah. what to do. And, um, yeah, it, it, it's just a, a way of fobbing us off, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would totally agree with that. I I just think that um, there's sometimes we give politicians and the police and all these, you know, sort of interested parties, so-called, a way of being uh, shown to say, oh, this is a terrible matter and... Um, we, without really, uh, understanding, you know, how our systems work, you know, we've got to, we've got to, you know, Andy's right, we actually know the information of how to, um, you know, stem the flow of, you know, the deaths and yet we just continue on with the same status and um and people, you know, it's all about sort of getting in, you know, I know that there was going to be, um, probably 10 years ago, um, um, anyway, there was going to be a number of consumption rooms, injecting rooms in Melbourne. That was, was 2000. 2000. So that, that was the Pennington report. It was published in 1999. So the recommendation was that five injecting rooms be opened across Melbourne. Yeah. And that report was actually commissioned by Jeff Kennett, hilariously. Yeah, right. And um, then uh, Steve Rax got into power and said, no, we, the Labor Party's quite socially conservative and yeah. they just kiboshed it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, but the thing is, you know, I guess uh, what we can do is, as activists and as community members is we just keep pushing, we keep pushing. And when the stars align... We get some movement. So we kept pushing and we kept pushing and we kept pushing. And finally, in 2018, we got the injecting room in Richmond. And we just got to keep pushing and keep pushing and keep pushing. And, you know, just don't give up, basically. Yeah. Well, I can say, when I started doing my thing in the mid-80s, there was absolutely nothing. Mm. You know, we, you know. Did you have a blue lady? Sorry? Did you have a blue lady? No, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> no, but we would have to steal the steal syringes from the emer. I mean, we could. There was maybe like four or five um, uh, pharmacies where you could buy clean, clean fits syringes, yeah. and you would have to steal them sometimes from emergency rooms. And and so just the lack and hepatitis C was. I mean, and I mentioned B, it earlier. Yeah. Sorry. And and happy. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I mean, and, and the reason that we got um, needle and syringe programs up and running was really from a you know the tragic sort of situation of HIV breaking out in the states. Yeah. And lucky we were lucky that you know somehow Neil Blewett, kind of you know the health um, minister at the time, sort of talked the government into doing it. And uh, unfortunately, we've sort of been resting on our laurels a bit since then. But. Um, yeah, needle and syringe programs are literally life-saving, uh, or, mm. you know, programs, and we underestimate them as well. We don't even understand how they help, really. They really are harm reduction at its best. All right, guys, so is there anything, uh, is there uh, any other events that we should know about today? The vigil in the city yeah. is really, really important. So if you really want to show your support, um, come to the town hall in Melbourne at 5pm and uh, be with us there and walk up um, with a candle up Burke Street. Um, I think there's electric candles being organised um, up to Parliament Stairs for um, some a, a few talks. 
Mm, that's that's a good thing. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Get along. And yeah. so is there anything that w- is there any other uh, p- the keeping the city alive? Is that the safe injecting room supporting to, su- to support the second? Yeah, that's um, keep our city alive is a group that's really keep, sorry keep our city alive. Yeah, um, been instrumental in working, you know, to get the Richmond, you know, um, injecting room kind of um, stable and happening. And um, they're really uh, a great group and very political. And uh, yeah, the only other thing I would say really quickly is that if you do see somebody who um, is sort of that you think might be overdosing, really um, go up to them and make sure that they're okay and find out about naloxone. It is the go. What should we be looking out for, Finn? Like, so is it just someone looks un- oh, unconscious? Yes. Yeah, non-responsive. Yeah. Okay. I've non-responsive. responded to two people recently and neither of them was a heroin overdose, even though I thought it was at first. And, yeah, if, you, so, if someone's non-responsive, they need help. And we'll have all of the information about how to access harm reduction Victoria's naloxone training as well in our show notes. I've done it. It's excellent. It is 30 minutes. You will learn so much. Um, But yeah, look, thank you so much, Finn and Andy, for joining us on International Overdose Awareness Day. Spice, you want to sign off with any last words? Um, Only um, if try not to be alone if this is a difficult um, time. Um, Yeah. And reach out to people. Yeah. yeah. Good words. Take yeah. care of yourselves, everyone. And um, we will uh, join you back again next Thursday morning on 3CR 855 AM. You've been listening to Thursday Breakfast. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. While you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent